0: Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of The Bench Press. I'm Jess Coleman, sitting here with Mr. Bobby Denault. Bobby, Hi. how's your week going?
1: I've had a week. I moved this week. moving in New York. Everything that can go wrong will go wrong, but I'm on the other side of it. Happy to be a newly minted Chelsea resident.
0: We lost a, another lower Manhattan resident <laughs> to what I call, I mean, that's way uptown. That's like that's way up there.
1: I'm on Fourteenth Street, Jess. There's a hundred and ninety yeah. streets.
0: <laughs> it's different weather up there. We have to break out the Canada Goose to come there. <laughs> well, we open up our Chelsea studio soon. Yeah, excited yeah. for that. We'll get some cool guests
1: up there. I've already seen like two celebrities.
0: I don't, I don't know if they're going to want to. They don't want. They don't wander down to Battery Park City. <laughs> well, we got some good topics to to hit on today, Bobby, You want to start us off?
1: So we're going to get warmed up today with a local story coming out of the great state of Georgia. And it's not really too big a national story yet, but there's something very concerning happening in the Peach State. Georgia has implemented a crackdown on protesters of a project that's being called Cop City. Uh, It's basically a, quote, public safety training center for police officials that's being put in the county where atlanta is located it's expensive it's going to cost 90 million dollars and there's sort of like twofold i guess objections to this one comes from people who think this is just going to like further militarize the police state in georgia this giant project to train law enforcement a lot of people are also objecting on a second track it's going to take 85 acres of green space.
0: What do they need 85 acres for?
1: They are constructing like a mimic city in oh, this yeah, seriously. And they're going to train people to like respond to situations and, like riot situations or fires and they're going to build like buildings. There's also going to be an auditorium. It's a massive project Um, and it's backed by the Atlanta police foundation and it is backed by Atlanta's democratic mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms. Um, But there's, there's a strong opposition that has built to this. Um, And it's sort of a mix of environmental uh, protesters and people protesting You know, law enforcement, they think this is the further escalation of the militarization of the police in the United States, which has been an ongoing complaint by those with objections to how police are handling um, community relations across the country. And we all know, we're familiar with that. But this has gone down a very strange road. And it started in January. A protester was shot and killed by police as they raided a campground that I think was in this acreage uh, where these people are sort of parked out. And the police claimed that the protester shot first, but there was no body camera footage and I think an independent autopsy was done. The family of the victim said that he was sitting on the ground and that independent autopsy Mm -hmm. found that he didn't have a gun and he was sitting on the ground cross-legged or or, their, their findings certainly contradicted the police story that he was shooting at a police officer in the wake of that shooting governor brian kemp declared a state of emergency at the end of january he ordered the georgia defense department to mobilize a thousand up to a thousand national guard troops six people were arrested in january Then 30 people were arrested in March and the, the arrests in March sort of mark this really weird dystopian turn of this police crackdown on this protest. There's like agitators, I guess that might've been embedded with this protest. And that's at least how law enforcement has identified this. And we know from the past that has been true in the wake of George Floyd, there were agitators. They were actually far right agitators that were trying to, create more chaos in those protests, right? Like throwing firebombs at police departments and and shit like that. Um, Apparently the police say some of these agitators were using fireworks and other means to escalate the protests. And they were charged under Georgia law with domestic terrorism.
0: What are the penalties? Do we know under the, that they're facing?
1: I think that it's up to 20 years for some of these charges. I mean, that's pretty serious.
0: It's like, I mean, obviously this country has a, a long history of locking up protesters, arresting protesters. But the escalation to try to put them away at, you know, on terrorism charges just for protest is, is shocking.
1: It gets way worse. So the arrest warrants for these quote unquote agitators. And I think there's 23 now. I don't think all 30 that were arrested in March were charged with domestic terrorism. And it seems like the number has whittled down. I think like at one point it was 23 charged with domestic terrorism. Now it's 19. But the warrants for their arrest, like the probable cause is nutty. They, they say that they, the evidence supporting their arrest is like them having mud on their feet or having phone numbers of lawyers written on their arms. Like, OK, right. neither of those is evidence of a crime being committed. Like it, it's just apparently these are very thin probable cause affidavits in support of their being charged with domestic terrorism under Georgia law. Right. But on the flip side, only two of the people arrested and charged were actually from Atlanta. Wow. So like there is some maybe there are people coming from out of the state and getting involved in this. And Georgia police see that as like a very serious concern for escalation. I don't know.
0: So the the numbers that they had written on their arms, I saw this too. So they th- that was a number of a of a of a bail fund, right? Apparently,
1: is a mixed like there were legal defense people who were involved in offering their services, and some people had written their numbers in the event that they got arrested, right? So that they would have that to make their phone call, I guess, from jail.
0: And they're using that as evidence right. that they were engaged I mean, in some. Sort. So they though these people went there, and smartly predicted, they prepared. For a situation where they would be unjustly arrested for protesting. And right. because they had that foresight, it's now being used as evidence against them right. in a domestic in- terrorism case.
1: That they actually intended to commit a crime yeah. because they were prepared to be arrested. I mean, Georgia is walking a very thin line with using, using something that is totally lawful, which is to keep a lawyer's number on standby. As evidence of domestic terrorism?
0: There has been, over, really post 9-11, a real crackdown on dissidents and the fact that we can get to a, a point now where something – I didn't even know about this story. right? Like right. You had to tell me about this story. Like The fact that these things don't cause a broader outcry, don't even get coverage, it's sort of we're reaching a status quo where government cracking down on people's First Amendment rights is just kind of acceptable and normal.
1: The post nine eleven landscape is very quick to move to how serious something can be a national security issue. Right. And Georgia is mimicking that a bit here and being like, this could escalate into a national sec- or, a, or a domestic security problem. So right. we're going to charge these guys with domestic terrorism for protesting a giant police project in 85 acres of green space in Atlanta? Like, come on. Right. And look, I don't live in Georgia. And I heard about this story because I've got like three friends who are from Georgia. I wouldn't know about it if they didn't tell me. I haven't seen this on any networks. And here's where it gets really scary. Three more people were arrested in early, I guess, May with felony intimidation of a police officer and misdemeanor stalking for posting the identity of the cop that had shot that protester back in January. And I find that, like, really troubling. I mean, look. Intimidation of a police officer? for, For posting his identity. For killing somebody. Jesus Christ. And, like, look. I don't know the specifics. Maybe it was accurate that he was fired at. I don't know. I wasn't there. But if you're in law enforcement, sorry, but that's par for the course. Your identity, if you kill a person in the line of duty, is going to be public knowledge. Like, that, that's not police intimidation to identify the guy. Mm-hmm. It seems like a speech infringement. To say that that is somehow a crime Mm -hmm. to identify the the government official who killed a protester, even if it was inaccurate self-defense, it's a public concern.
0: Yeah. I mean, you see this going alongside, like you said, broader militarization of the police. They now have military-style weapons that they've literally gotten from the military. And it's sort of a cycle where they are gaining all this power, gaining all these resources— and so they utilize them to build something like a cop city. And then there's public outcry to it. There's pushback. And then they now use these resources to go after the dissidents. Right? It's like it's just it's, a, it's an escalation of just the interaction between the police state and the people. It's like choosing the slippery slope. Like yeah. they
1: have actively chosen to construct a giant project that they had to know was going to ruffle feathers. Even if it's a good idea. Like maybe it is. I don't really know. But you have to know seizing 85 acres of green space for a giant cop project is probably going to piss off a lot of people. And then there's one more layer to this that's extremely concerning. Last week, three more activists were arrested and charged with money laundering for organizing a legal bail fund for those arrested in relation to the protests. And their arrests Or like they sent a freaking SWAT team to their house. To a nonprofit. And look, again, I'm not involved in these protests. I don't know how they've looked on the ground. It is possible that there's agitators or, or nefarious parts of the protests that have goals that are antithetical to the rest of these protesters who really care about this issue. I don't know. But raising money for a bail fund is not illegal. And it is not aiding and abetting crimes. That's just not true. The January 6th people have enjoyed tons of GoFundMe money that was raised by Michael Flynn and who knows who. That's not them committing a crime by choosing to try to help January 6th defendants exercise their legal right to bail.
0: It's the criminalization of not only your First Amendment right to protest, but then the criminalization of the people just helping the protesters navigate yeah. the legal system. The thing that really pisses me off about this story, and like I, this was my immediate thought when you sent this to me, and I was like, why have I never heard of this? In like 2020, when defund the police was a slogan on the left... It literally became like this political rallying cry, this huge thing that everyone was talking about. Is this going to drastically like change the political landscape, move people away from the Democrats? Nothing actually like happened. Like It was just like a slogan that people were yeah. talking about. And then you have something like this, like a shocking abuse of power by the police, and no one hears about it.
1: And it's not for lack of trying. These protesters and people down in Georgia have really tried to put this story out there. And in researching it, once I heard about it from my friends, I was like, oh, there are Articles out there, there's a lot, it's just not being put on the cable news shows. Mm-hmm. Like, let's not get caught up in the tabloid fodder of being interested in Ron DeSantis, and so we're only going to focus on the bad things Ron DeSantis is related to. Right? It's just as scary to see protesters being charged with domestic terrorism again, not weighing in on the merits of whether there are a few who like threw a firebomb or something. OK, like that might be a fair charge to charge 19 people with domestic terrorism. That's pretty broad. And it wouldn't shock me if some of those get dropped. But the stain of being charged for even a month with domestic terrorism, even if it gets taken off, like I, the use of the government that way should be alarming to everybody in relation with, to a protest and then criminalizing the people raising money for their bail. Like there's a lot of escalation steps that are happening here very quickly in Georgia. This cop city thing, man, I, we need more eyes on this down in Georgia. And if you're, if you're listening to this pod and you're involved down there, or you have more information, feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to talk and find out some more, some more inside info about what's exactly happening down in Georgia.
0: Yeah. Well, we're not the New York times here at the bench press, but we're going to no, do our much best better. We're actually, we're, we're actually going to you know, listen to you and report it correctly. <laughs> Okay. Well, on to our next topic. Justice Roberts, Chief Justice of the United States, received an award at the American Law Institute, the Friendly Medal, named after Judge Henry Friendly. And if you're asking, Jess, why are you telling us that? Who cares? I 100% agree with you. I have no idea what this award is or why he got it. But he got an award and he made a speech Most of it was pretty irrelevant, the sort of things you would expect a judge to talk about. But at the end, he starts to address some of the critiques regarding the ethics of Supreme Court justices, the increasing radicalization and politicization of the Supreme Court. Um, So we wanted to play a clip for you. Here is what Justice Roberts had to say about the hardest decision he's had to make as a Supreme Court justice.
1: Play the clip.
2: It's much in the legal arena that he would find abhorrent. Judge heckled and shouted down at a law school. Protesters outside the homes of justices, to the extent that martial protection is needed 24-7. In 18 years, I asked, what was the hardest thing, what was the hardest decision I had to make in 18 years? Was it this First Amendment case? Was it that death penalty case? Was it some major separation of powers case? None of those. The hardest decision I had to make was whether to erect fences and barricades around the Supreme Court. I had no choice but to go ahead and do it, but while it was going on, while the fences were going up, I kept hearing Charles Evans Hughes's remarks at the um, opening of the Supreme Court building. He said, the Republic endures, and this is the symbol of its faith.
0: This guy is responsible for gutting the key achievement of the civil rights movement, the, the Voting Rights Act. He's responsible for unleashing unprecedented amounts of corporate spending and control into our elections. He's up there with the, you know majority chipping away at abortion rights. None of that was a hard decision for him. It was putting up fences. That was his hardest decision. The slightest interaction with people who are affected by his decisions, not the actual decisions themselves. Where do you even begin with this?
1: I don't know. Every week, it feels like they shock me by showing they're more out of touch than I thought. I mean, this has been, has to be, one of the worst stretches of PR management by this court in history. I mean, starting with the leak, then not investigating the leak very well. Then it comes out that they didn't interview any of the justices under oath about the leak. Then the Clarence Thomas ethics BS. Then more of that. Then more of that. Then we find out some stuff about other justices and everybody's getting paid. Then the letter, the stupid letter. Congress saying, please come talk to us about ethics at the court. And John Roberts saying, no, And then Sam Alito gives a crazy interview to the Wall Street Journal opining about how annoying the public is for being stressed about the court. All those issues. And by the way, none of those is an actual case. Right. All of those are very real crises at the Supreme Court. And none of them was the hardest issue for him to decide on. And I get what he's trying to say. He's trying to say like. It hurts me to separate us from the public because we're supposed to be an open space, but we can't because of how vitriolic it has become. That's kind of part of being open to the public, though. Sometimes the, the fire's going to get hot. Yeah. You know, don't put the fence up, man.
0: Yeah. And the beginning of that was even more shocking where he says, Judge Friendly would have found abhorrent a justice being heckled at a law school. Like, are you fucking kidding me? A few college kids heckling you down because the court that you lead just overturned Roe versus Wade or, you know, has interpreted the First Amendment to allow Walmart to like buy the White House. The real threat to the rule of law is people exercising any objection at all. They just don't believe that it is appropriate to object to anything that they do. I'm sorry, that's just like that that's just a bizarre conception of government to believe that the public has no role whatsoever in how the law is constructed, what the law means i mean it just it can't be that way.
1: not only can't it be that way, but it's just so dangerous that belief system that it's nine aristocrats who should be unquestioned and That it's abhorrent for anyone to be objecting to people that gut clean water protections because they tell us adjacent means adjoining
0: now. That's abhorrent to me. It's not like he was like, I think you guys are wrong substantively. No, he just said the mere fact that you are heckling me. When a judge is in the room, you sit and you shut up and you just listen because we understand the law and we are doing the law and, and there, there can't be any objection. Don't you dare scream
1: about one of us taking a yacht trip in Indonesia that costs $500,000 on a judge's salary.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because the fence comment wasn't his only comment. He also oh, God. addressed oh, God. <laughs> the growing calls to uh, have some ethical rules at the Supreme Court. Here's what the justice said.
2: And on a final issue of concern inside the court, I want to assure people that I am committed to making certain that we as a court adhere to the highest standards of conduct. We are continuing to look at things we can do to give practical effect to that commitment. And I am confident there are ways to do that that are consistent with our status as an independent branch of government under the Constitution's separation of powers
0: oh cool i feel fine now great
1: cancel that indonesia trip clarence (laughs) right right he's got this i mean look the reality is nothing's been done right it's been months and by the way there's no process really that needs to happen for them if they're gonna govern themselves there's no passage of votes in the house or the senate if you want to write a new ethics code it could have been written by now And could have been uniformly Mm -hmm. adopted by the justices.
0: They haven't done that as far as I'm aware. And the separation of powers thing. We got into this a few episodes ago. He's confident that something can be done that's consistent with the separation of powers. Sounds great, right? Like separation of powers, yeah. What does that mean? Because when, when I think of the separation of powers, I think of checks and balances, right? Like that's what separation of powers really means. It doesn't mean like each branch plows forward and does what it does and doesn't listen to the other branches. No, it's, it's the complete opposite. The branches are set up to check each other, right? Congress has oversight of the executive. The president has the veto power. There, are, The Constitution gives all kinds of powers to Congress to, you know, take away jurisdiction from the court in certain situations if they want.
1: I'm going to push back because I do think the Constitution is a little weird. Please. It does seem to create them as An independent entity that, yes, of course, is subject to the law like everyone else. Like, you can't commit bribery or do wire fraud as a justice or something. But governing the scope of, like, what's allowed and what's not allowed by the justices is a thornier question. And they do kind of seem to govern themselves. The point I'm about to make is I think the check comes from these other fights. That are like jurisdiction stripping, where it's like, okay, oh, you want to like actually tell us that you're on it and you're on top of it, and we have to just trust you because we don't have the right to do anything about it, then we'll just keep stripping your jurisdiction over the cases that you love to to be the final arbiter on, because we can do that under the constitution, and you agree that we can do that, and Mm -hmm. we'll just punish you until we're confident that you actually are taking this seriously
0: yourselves. I actually agree with that, but if that's true that they can, and again, we're going to get into jurisdiction and tripping in a future episode, it's complicated it's fun but if it it is fun if it's true that Congress does have the power, and it does broadly speaking to strip down the Supreme courts and all the federal courts, the federal courts don't even have to exist, but strip down the Supreme Court's jurisdiction down to basically nothing not not nothing but like really except for original jurisdiction right? Or or whatever. Strip it down a lot, right? Diversity between states
1: and original issues arising under the Constitution, yeah.
0: If they can strip it down pretty far, which I think everyone agrees they can, they can't simply call the justice before the Judiciary Committee to ask questions about ethics. Those two things can't be true, right? Like the, gr- the greater power has to include the lesser power. And it's not even really a power. Like his conception of the separation of powers is you can't tell me to do anything. I have independent powers and you can't intrude on them at all. That wouldn't be separation of powers. That would be like tyranny of each branch, right? If they just had unchecked power completely. Yeah, I I, I
1: get what you're saying. I mean, I, I do think the weird thing about questioning people is like, yes, Congress has this authority to have hearings and do investigations, but- there's a pathway to making them legitimate they can relate to like impeachment or they can relate to like passing a bill and the big hearings that we've seen january 6th watergate those kinds of investigative like it feels like congress isn't just passing a law they're like trying to get to the bottom of something they've had to do with either impeachment or getting to a core function of Congress that was thwarted or messed with in a certain way, which is really January 6th, on this issue of SCOTUS justices and ethics, unless they get really serious and say, we're going to impeach Clarence Thomas, it's harder for them to justify an, an investigation hearing because there's not like a core function they can point to that's as clear as it was in like, January sixth, where they're certifying an election, and 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 an attack actually happened in their house, like. So I, I don't know. It's a bit. That's it's fair. a bit confusing. I, I I agree. Like Congress is the most powerful branch, and is very difficult for me to imagine they can control the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, but they can't ask questions of the Chief Justice. But there is this like history of of delicate considerations about congressional hearings,
0: and 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 just at, uh, at the end of the day, just like the gall of this guy. To stand up and be like, separation of powers means that you, Congress, the elected branch with your five hundred members, you guys shut up. Right. I'm gonna stand here at the frickin' American Law Institute and I got this. You you trust me. Never face the voters ever. She's right. just some like federalist society dude right. who went to Harvard or Yale. I don't know what's the difference. I think and he went to Yale. I I don't care. And <laughs> <laughs> if I was him. I'd I'd be I'd be laying low right now.
1: I would be publishing a new code of ethics. I would be yeah. trying to persuade the American public that we're do- we hear you, we see this as problematic, and we're going to stop telling you to fuck off mm-hmm. because that's not an appropriate reaction for what appears to be pretty blatant corruption problems at the Supreme Court of the United States.
0: Mm-hmm. So this is what happens when when there's no accountability this is how this is how people end up acting when there's no accountability all right so
1: we're gonna dive into the heavy lift up next we're taking a deep dive into a topic we talked about pretty specifically last week the jack smith investigation into the mar-a-lago documents case it feels like it's like a soap opera title or something wait we're not
0: we're not doing the heavy lift on joe biden tripping over the sandbags at the uh Air Force Academy, that's a big story. I got a push notification about it, so it's got to be a big story. Yeah, Um, you
1: know, we're going to get that next week once we get
0: his x-ray back on his ankle or something. Yeah, 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 because we don't want to be accused of being, you know, biased.
1: No, no, I want all the facts. I want all the facts first.
0: Yeah, we'll be right back.
1: Okay, welcome back. Today's Heavy Lift, we are going to take a little bit of a deeper dive and a more organized dive into a topic we discussed at length last week, which is the special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Basically, our approach today is to split up the time frame of potential exposure here for the former president in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. And I think conceptually, it's helpful for listeners to just sort of understand the different pieces of criminal exposure that Trump is facing. And you can sort of bucket them into three broad categories. And the first is stealing. He's potentially in trouble for just stealing government property that he knew was government property and taking it to his residence and not giving it back when it was requested. Then two, showing and or maybe selling this material. Uh, it, some of it was, as we know, very highly sensitive classified government information that was shown reportedly to third parties that may not have had the proper clearances to see it. And then the last bucket that you get into is hiding it, trying to keep it in response to grand jury subpoena requests for the material. And so those three categories, stealing, showing, and hiding, represent the three buckets of criminality that Trump faces in this investigation. But we'll start with the most recent evidence that has emerged in the last week, a tape recording of Trump at Bedminster uh, talking to two authors, uh, and apparently numerous aides were in the room, about a classified document that was submitted by General Mark Milley, who ended up being Trump's Joint Chiefs Chair for a period of time, but he, he apparently wasn't chair of the joint chiefs at the time that this document was prepared that related to a potential invasion of Iran. And he alluded to knowing that he had retained the document, that he could not share the document with the reporters, I guess, implying that he knew that they did not have the proper clearances to see the document.
0: Right.
1: And so sort of also alluding to that he knew it wasn't declassified because if it were declassified, anybody could see it. Mm-hmm. And so this apparently was recorded by uh, either an aide or, or one of the writers. And they had that writer in front of the grand jury found out about the recording, and Jack Smith apparently has the recording uh, of Trump making these comments, showing his knowledge and intent to hold on to the document and that it was classified.
0: Right. What, what had happened was there was a New Yorker story about... The end of Trump's presidency, where Mark Milley, is it Milley or Miley? I think it's Milley. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> where he apparently said that Trump was like really unhinged and everything had to go through him so he could make sure that Trump wouldn't do something crazy like attack Iran. Right. And Trump apparently held on to this document to say. No, it was him who was crazy. He's the one who wanted to invade Iran, not me, because he was incensed by this New Yorker story. The fact that these people are like, no, you wanted to invade Iran. No, you would want to invade. Like, these people are just like, it, this is ridiculous. Like, we almost invaded Iran. <laughs> yeah, like, and, and like, it's like a personal battle of like, who wants to invade Iran more, which right. is like, just wild. But the question for me has always been like, what's the motive here? Mm. Right, and you know the mind always goes to his business because we've gone down that road many times. Was he was he trying to do something for his personal financial interest? That's certainly a possibility. But I hadn't really thought of this possibility, which makes a lot of sense. Which is just like personal animosity. Like he held on mm. these documents to like have dirt on people. Like that actually makes a lot of sense. It's not probably important in a in a legal sense. You don't really have to prove a, a motive. You do have to prove intent, which this could be helpful for. Right, but. The motive, I think, is really important just in presenting this case to a jury. Like, people are going to want to understand why he was doing this. And by the way, think about it this way. If this were a random chief of staff who
1: stole it, hid it, shared it with other people, and it was classified, it would be open and shut. I mean, it would be helpful for the jury presentation to know, oh, he hated this guy. Mm -hmm. And he was trying to, like have some leverage or point the finger, it's still very illegal and criminal. But when it's Trump, I think we do this thing where we're like, look, if he didn't sell it to Saudi Arabia, it's not that bad. Right, <laughs> and, right. like, and like, you, you can't do that. It's actually so bad. Like, it's just as illegal, even if the motive wasn't to sell the document yes. to his business partners. You know what I'm saying? We put such a high bar on, on proving this guy's malintent,
0: but like, it really could be any malicious thing. This is this is what happens when this goes in off into an investigation for like a very long time, and we're not hearing about it. We expect that they're going to put together this like ridiculous like Netflix show, House of Cards level conspiracy. Right. Like with Mueller, it became this thing that like he has to prove collusion. Like he, he had has to prove
1: to... he had to prove the dossier, and it was like, yo, the dossier
0: is like not that true, <laughs> right? Like, and then it, and then it came out that there was like tacit coordination stuff that's like the wildest political story in history, but everyone right. like looked at it. It was like, who cares? That's not even close to what we were expecting. Yeah. And, and we're, we're kind of going down that, that road now. We're like, there's a lot of stories now and a lot of speculation, like people on, on Twitter and everything, like looking into the, the subpoena for the, the Saudi records and stuff like that. People look at that and they immediately think, okay, like he's, he's going to have something there. Like just because you subpoena it doesn't mean that that's where it's leading. Right. You're checking the box.
1: It's an investigative box. Like maybe something would come up from that, but you don't need that, especially when you have all this evidence about his like personal animosity toward Mark Like it's just as illegal. So I think a lot of people are fatigued by Trump investigations. And you know, this is it. It's about to happen. And then it doesn't happen. I will venture to say at this point, this seems like it's happening. I mean, even this morning on my ride, on my subway ride down here, There was more reporting in the New York Times that the crime fraud exception that they used to put one of his lawyers, Evan Corcoran, in front of the grand jury. Apparently, Mr. Corcoran, about a month into representing Donald Trump, wanted to create a memorandum for himself on what happened so far in his work, and on a long drive to a family function, used his iPhone to make a very long recorded note of his own articulation of what had transpired between him and the client up to that point. And Jack Smith has it. And it's a lawyer speaking about all of his interactions with Trump, the search, searching the storage room, and it's on recording. And apparently it's like 16 pages of material and look, normally lawyers take lots of notes. It is very normal for lawyers to take notes of all of their meetings with a client, with opposing counsel, with the Department of Justice, with whoever. It is less normal to do something like this, to, to make a recording of your personal thoughts. By the way, this recording was made before he was subpoenaed under the crime fraud exception. So it's not like he knew this recording was going anywhere. But it, it's possible like he thought, you know, If I'm ever asked questions about my culpability here, I want to be very clear on what's transpired. And if I make this today, no one can accuse me of rewriting history down the road. I'm putting this down today so that if someone ever comes and asks, look, I actually (laughs) actually made a record for myself of everything that's transpired and I made it on you know, June, whatever, 2022. So I know that I didn't just make it up when someone came asking. Anyway, lots of recordings out there and we're moving very quickly. So a lot of this evidence is becoming public and it just has that feeling like this this may result in charges very soon.
0: How is all this information becoming public? Is it anonymous sources? And do we have any indication of where these sources are? Are, if there are charges coming, what's the benefit of putting this stuff out there now?
1: That's a great question that I've been wondering a lot about. I think it's clearly coming from the Trump camp. Has to be. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's coming from Jack fear, Smith's maybe. team. Right? I think it's kind of fear. Yeah. With uh, Corcoran, this lawyer, I think some of it is he's been pierced by the crime fraud exception. And so... This is no longer privileged, and it's in front of the grand jury. And so it's, it's out there, and it, I guess, maybe softens the blow a bit if there is an indictment. Right, There is some strategy there of, like, when you know the evidence because it's been in the New York Times for a couple weeks, it, it lacks the punch of a big revelation. The stuff that's come out— has been distinctly all related to evidence from people in the Trump camp. You have not heard, oh, the government is super concerned about this issue. For example, it did come out that Mark Milley appeared before the grand jury. Right. But... We have like no idea why that didn't leak when it happened. I'm not entirely clear when it happened, but it it wasn't like yesterday. I don't know how they know that. Maybe his attorney confirmed it. I I don't know. But to me, the fact that like all the details that we're getting in these in these articles are coming from employees at Mar-a-Lago, aides of Trump, attorneys from Trump. It come on. It's them. It's them talking to the New York Times and the Washington Post and trying to get out in front of what's probably going to be a pretty scary looking charging instrument about stealing government documents and information, sharing it unlawfully, and then hiding it when the government came looking for it.
0: Yeah, it is. The reason I'm I'm thinking about it is because I don't remember something similar happening with the Mueller investigation. It's probably because like, this is getting much closer mm. to Trump himself, right. and like, there's more exposure for actual criminal liability. It's just a little bit more active yeah. in the actual case itself, which would tend to indicate that something's coming.
1: <laughs> there were a couple instances in the Mueller investigation people might remember. Mueller was appointed in May of 2017. In November or late October... There was a New York Times report or a Washington Post report, one of the two, that Mueller had determined he had enough evidence to charge Michael Flynn with a crime. It -hmm. wasn't clear exactly which, but they were like maybe lobbying issues, maybe lying to the FBI. But there was a report about that. And then about six weeks after that, Mike Flynn had pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI and was Mm -hmm. cooperating. And so there was a little bit of this where you, like, found out we knew that they were probing Manafort. We kind of knew that they maybe flipped his associate or, like, were working with him. There was some of this, but it was much more tight-lipped, and we did not get a dramatic string of, like, here's the evidence they had. Here's, Here's who they're talking to. This is their roster of potential witnesses. And so that is clearly a Team Trump strategy difference. Like they are, they are leaking this actively, I think, to take the blow out of what might be coming.
0: Yeah, I hate this, like reading the tea leaves on this stuff, because everyone always ends up being wrong. But it is interesting to see if it is indeed the Trump strategy to sort of soften the blow. I wonder if that's because they really just don't have a defense here.
1: No, they, yeah, they don't. They don't. Let's like run through these statutes really fast on this buckets thing. Good segue. Let's talk about why there's really not a great defense for any of this.
0: We, we should say these statutes that we're going through are the ones that appeared in the affidavit in support of the search warrant for Mar-a-Lago. So these are what the government has represented to a court are the relevant criminal statutes.
1: Starting with... 18 U.S.C. 2071. Whoever willfully and unlawfully conceals, removes, mutilates, obliterates, or destroys, or attempts to do so, takes and carries away any record, proceeding, map, book, paper, document, or other thing filed in any public office shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than three years or both. That's essentially don't steal or destroy government property that doesn't belong to you. It's fairly simple. It it has nothing to do with declassifying or not. You put a bunch of government documents into boxes. If they have evidence, and it's been reported that they did, of Trump getting documents delivered to the West Wing, personally reviewing the contents of these boxes, having them brought to Mar-a-Lago, You are removing a bunch of papers that belong to the government to your personal residence, taking them with you. And by the way, like the Milley document, that's not Trump's notes. It's not something Trump drafted. It's not his document. It's a government document that was drafted by a general of the United States military. This is not yours. You don't own this record, but you requested it and suddenly it's removed and you're using it after you're gone from the government. How is it not willful retention of a government record that doesn't belong to you?
0: Right. And, and willfully is an interesting term because it doesn't say intentionally or knowingly. It says willfully. Like he had control of it and he did it. Right. So it's not even that high a standard for that one. And that's why it's the lower penalty, too. Right. So that's stealing. So there's your first bucket.
1: Then, like, the sharing-selling point. And I think this is where people are most interested because it's the most juicy. And I get it. But the government may want to pursue some sort of theory that that he took these documents, he had them at Mar-a-Lago, a freaking commercial club, like, yes, he lives there, but it's a, it's a hotel club or whatever it is. People constantly coming through. There's reporting that he showed these documents or kept them out in the open where other people could see them and was aware other people could see them. And then there's this other question of, like, did he have a motive or, like, a reason to be showing them? Is there... so Mark Meadows is autobiographer. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> to sell books. Um, or to attack the character of people he didn't like? You know, was he unlawfully sharing these? And the most serious charge here is 18 U.S.C. 793. Whoever having unauthorized possession of, access to, or control over any document relating to the national defense, which information the possessor has reason to believe could be used to the injury of the United States or to the advantage of any foreign nation, Willfully communicates, delivers, or transmits the same to any person not entitled to receive it. Let's just fracture there because there's a second half of the statute and we'll get there. You don't have to give that information to a foreign government directly. It just relates to the national defense, could be used to the injury of the United States, or to the advantage of another foreign nation. And if you transmit that to a person who's not entitled to receive it, not a forego. Anyone not entitled to get it.
0: Right. Crime. And no requirement, again, that the document be classified. Right. Now, there is some, some case law on this, and if you see the part where it says information the possessor has reason to believe could be used to the injury of the United States or to the advantage of any foreign nation, some courts have said if the document is classified, that s- strongly weighs in favor of— just on its face, it could it could be used to the injury of the United States. But it doesn't have to be. Right. So there are cases where it's things like police records, I think, things that are completely unclassified. And that's all we hear about. I just can think it's unclassified and it's unclassified. It doesn't matter. Right. So long as this document relates to national defense and could be used to injure the United States and you willfully show it to someone that was not authorized to see it, that's a crime. Right. They appear pretty close to proving that right here with this one.
1: It's pretty bad. And here's the kicker. There's an or, which means there's multiple ways to violate this statute. And the next part says, or willfully retains the same, so a national defense document, and fails to deliver it to the officer or employee of the United States entitled to receive it. So So like if they ask for it and you don't give it to them. Right. And we have two instances of that here. The National Archives asking for these and a grand jury asking for these. And if you fail to deliver, it doesn't even mean you hide it, you destroy it. If you just, if you fail to turn it over, that's on you. And notwithstanding the fact, and this takes us to our third bucket, hiding, we do have some evidence that there was hiding going on here. And that brings us to our third statute. And this is the obstruction statute, 18 USC 1519. Whoever knowingly destroys any document with the intent to impede, obstruct, or influence the investigation or proper administration of any matter within the jurisdiction of any department shall be fined under this title, imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. And the thing is here, seems like we have multiple instances of obstruction, right? Because you have NARA that went to Trump for a year asking for these documents, and they were not turned over, they were moved, they were hidden, and it's like, okay, that's pretty bad, and it seems like it could be obstruction because it applies to any matter, right? So NARA seeking the return of records that are it's entitled to could be considered a matter under 18 U.S.C. 1519, but even more than that, what's definitely a matter under this statute is a grand jury investigation, and when you get a subpoena, From a grand jury, you better turn over what they're asking for. And so for him, there's all this investigation, and as we're hearing in the reporting, evidence that they were moving documents around. They got the subpoena, and there's a shuffling of boxes. There's aides bringing things in, bringing them out. He's instructing the lawyer at a certain time of the day to go in now and do the search. He does it. They turn some over. Lo and behold, a bunch randomly disappeared from the storage
0: room and turned up in the bedroom two months later. Again, we didn't mention the word confidential or classified anywhere in these statutes. They're not required for any of them. They could help, but they're not required. And these statutes alone, 20 years for the obstruction statute, three years for 2071, which is the first one you went through, and 10 years for the 793, the national defense documents. And, and I believe this is like per document could be a separate count. I've, heard, I've read that
1: too. There's some experts say that's how they charge them per document. I, I don't know if that's true.
0: So like, think about like the New York case where Trump was already charged, like getting that up to a felony where, he, like where there's even prison time as a possibility was like this big legal fight. The, the maximum penalties on these things are, are very, very, very serious. Not that he would actually like get that time, but like this is, this is serious exposure right here. It is
1: unbelievable. And none of this, none of this gets a classification defense. Right. Like He can't just say, oh, well, I declassified all of it. Okay, you still obstructed. Right. You still stole.
0: You still shared. That's really the thing that I wish, that I, I want to get across because all we hear about with this over and over again when his lawyers go on CNN and have these, like all we hear from them is it was declassified, I declassified it, whatever, I have the power to. And even if they can prove that, which they probably can't based on what I've heard, it, it's, not, it's not an element of the crime here. All of it together is why this is being
1: treated by the government in an aggressive way. Look at Pence and Biden, who famously in the last 6 months have been found to like also have classified materials right, right. we've heard no stories that they had aids shuffling them around the day before the government showed up we've had no stories of them leaking these to people writing books mm-hmm. and sure are there crazies out there who are going to be like well look biden and china and blah 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 it's conjecture though we've actually had no reporting That someone in the Biden team or Biden himself was sitting with a document or talking about a document. I mean, we don't even know any evidence that he knew the documents that existed in his residence or whatever. Like, this is serious because it's a two-year period of them asking Trump, go through your shit and tell us what you have. And getting no, 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 getting evidence that he's sharing them, moving them. It's like... At some point, come on, you got to accept that the guy's acting differently and it's making the government get more aggressive with him. He could have turned all this over and avoided all of this. Why would
0: he follow the rules? He's never had accountability before in his life. For while. I think, yeah,
1: you must be right. Some part of it is he just
0: doesn't care and he doesn't think he'll ever be accountable. His whole life has led him to believe that and hopefully that changes. Well, hopefully Jack Smith doesn't also scoop us and there are charges before this episode gets out. If there are. I think this still is a helpful
1: time frame of why the government approaches an investigation into classified documents differently in some contexts. It's kind of amazing. But when you think back to 2016, that whole election, we're talking about classified documents on an email server. And some would say it ended Hillary Clinton's candidacy, even though nothing criminal was ever levied at her. And we're still dealing with the aftermath of this kind of behavior 7 years later from the very man who said she should go to jail for what she did.
0: And I think the reason it stuck as much as it did with Hillary Clinton who wasn't even charged with a crime was because it speaks to the way people in power view their role and view their own power and it's just to take documents and just not be afraid of any accountability. They don't believe that the rules should apply to them. They don't believe that they should ever face accountability. So I think in that sense this will, this is powerful. Yeah. And plus, you know what you see? You see these stories of government employees who are like,
1: god, like one time I accidentally took, you know, a document in my right. briefcase home and I freaked out and I ran back and put it back and I told my superior immediately, blah blah. It just goes to show you how different the responsibilities and ethics weigh on people with different levels of seniority in our government. Mm-hmm. And that the higher ranking you you are, the less you seem to give a shit. Mm -hmm. And it's so sad that what gets attacked is the bureaucracy because the people in the bureaucracy who you don't know, they're trying very hard for the most part to adhere to these rules and these ethics. And they're the ones worried that they're going to mess up. Mm -hmm. And the people at the top are being so careless, selfish.
0: Yeah. Accountability is everything. I mean, we can... We can deal with people doing bad stuff like taking documents out, but if there's no accountability for it, then it's going to keep happening. It keeps happening. So we'll obviously keep watching this. Um, I predict an indictment by the end of this month. By the end of the month? Yes. Okay. I predict an indictment. I would never dare get into the game of timing it because I have no idea. I predict it by the end of the month. Okay. Well, if you're right, then. Maybe I'll buy you like a succulent for your new apartment or something. No, I will kill it. Get me like an, <laughs> get me like an ice cream or something. Okay, I'll, well, I'm buying Mr. Denault an ice cream. Um, you go enjoy the rest of your day.
2: <laughs>
0: Thank you, as always, for joining us. And we will see you next week for another edition of The Bench Press.